Are you ready? No, you're not. Are you now? Okay, there was... Never mind. Here we go. You're listening to Culture Matters, a podcast of the Village Church. This is Josh Patterson. On today's episode, Matt and I will be discussing politics in the presidential election and a new movement called Public Faith with Michael Ware and Alan Noble. Then we're going to jump into our slow take segment for a discussion with Kyle Worley, Mike Johnny, David Rourke about the new movie, The Birth of a Nation. Okay, we want to welcome on to Culture Matters, Alan Noble and Michael Ware. Alan is editor-in-chief of Christ and Pop Culture and an associate professor of English at OBU in Shawnee, Oklahoma. He writes frequently about faith and culture, and his work has showed up in places such as The Atlantic, Vox, and BuzzFeed. Michael is the founder of Public Square Strategies and a leading strategist at the intersection of faith, politics, and American public life. He previously served in the White House of the Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships during President Obama's first term, went on to direct faith outreach for Obama's re-election campaign. Michael has a forthcoming book titled Reclaiming Hope, Lessons Learned in the Obama White House about the Future of Faith in America, which releases in January. Both Alan and Michael recently launched Public Faith, which is basically a movement and manifesto for Christians committing to Orthodox faith and working toward the common good through politics. It's a lot there, guys. Thank you so much. Welcome to the show. Thanks Great for having us. On. Yeah. So in, anytime someone uses the word manifesto, I, like I'm, I'm in strong, I'm in strong as soon as that happens. Hey, let's talk a little bit about the political situation in America. I mean, I I can't remember. I'm sure historically there's been a more divisive one. Maybe okay, let me take that. I am not sure there's been a more divisive one, but we certainly are in new water. So I'm a 42-year-old man and and so have been a bit dialed in to politics for the last 20 years and and this is something altogether different here. And what I found is that the Christians feel a little bit lost and confused here. So um, can I, can we all agree that disengagement, although tempting, isn't the right answer? Yes. Okay, so then... So I can what agree do we, with that. What, what do we... I guess the th- the thing I'd love to talk with you guys about is what's the play for the Christian that isn't necessarily as informed as he or she would like to be and and feels just the pull towards disengagement as opposed to engagement. So so what's what are we to do in this divisive environment where even finding good information is next to impossible? Yeah. Um I think it's it's important to remember that uh, one election isn't everything. Um, and the presidency is not everything. It's certainly important, but I think keeping those things in perspective uh, is more important because when we have two candidates who the majority of Americans don't want to be president and they're continuing to do things that, that, that seem to invite us to dislike them, which is amazing. We're not more likely to like them. We're less likely to like them uh, as this election goes on. It can feel overwhelming. We can feel trapped in the sense that there are no good options. There's nothing good we can do. And and that's just simply not true, right? I mean, so much of politics and the politics that will affect you directly go on at the local level. 
And so I, I think our first obligation is to pay attention to what's going on around us. Are you, you know, are you paying attention to, to, to city and county and state elections? And um, are you participating in school boards, those sorts of things? Because so much goes on there. And, and, and in the national elections, that means, of course, that, you know, if you can vote, uh, you know, for, for congressmen and women, that's, that's a way that you can impact things as well uh, that doesn't depend necessarily on, on, on the presidency. And um, so even, even in the act of voting, uh, there's, it's not hopeless. There's, n- there's not nothing we can do, right? There, there are some steps we can take that I think really matter and help. Yeah, I think those those comments are all helpful. I think I'll just add one thing I think we've lost track of is why we engage in politics. And politics becomes so much about sort of how you identify what team you're on, how politics kind of makes you feel that we've We've sort of lost track with this. A, this isn't a, a, a game. Politics isn't uh, you don't you don't follow politics like you follow uh, your fantasy football team. Um, the reason that politics is important is because it uh, affects the lives of our neighbors, um, and that if uh, we are going to truly love our neighbors, um, then we know that uh, engaging in politics is a uh, powerful and essential way to do that. Um, but, but I think part of why there's so much anxiety and uncertainty right now is that, that we've lost track of that. We, 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 we kind of take politics um, uh, uh, personally uh, um, to, to an extent that's, that's really uh, not healthy. And, and my hope is that the, the church and Christians, because uh, our, our, our hope, our grounding is found um, elsewhere uh, might be able to, to provide some, some caution and some new perspective to, a, to a, I think, an overly politicized culture. So how did we, how did we get here? I mean, I, I think that's – I'm intrigued by how did we get to where all of a sudden, like, politics is as personal as it is. And, and I guess it's always been somewhat heated, but, but it seems like – is it just that we're able to vent in 140 characters? We're able to just – ignorantly spout off on Facebook or link a blog that we wrote ourselves as a kind of factual information that should be uh, considered in the debate? How, how did politics become so personal? Yeah, well, I, think that's, I think that's all a, a part of it. I think, you know, broadly, like politicians uh, operate on the incentives and disincentives that we offer them. And so... Right. When we respond to uh, politicians because they appear on our favorite late-night show or because they have a really nice burn of their political opponents, but we don't respond when they roll out uh, a policy plan on how to prevent poverty or, or uh, when they admit that they were wrong on an issue, uh, we, we don't appreciate the humility involved in that. We actually penalize them for for uh, for acknowledging out loud that they might have been wrong on something, um, we the voters um, uh, inject and, and are, are are very um, have a have a heavy burden for um, for how politicians act, and so we could talk about 
um, uh, how political parties operate. We could talk about the role of donors. We could talk about the role of of media. But a, a big part of it is that that uh, politicians kind of stoke uh, and, and uh, sort of play into our emotions because that's what we award them to do. Let me jump in here and ask you this. I, I know a lot of people have been talking about this. I've thought about this myself. And it, it feels like Christians have been exposed in this particular election. And, and what I mean is is uh, we've been exposed kind of in terms of our apathy. We have not been working out these types of muscles to where we're put in what seems to be somewhat of an untenable situation and we haven't we haven't really worked out these types of muscles how to think christianly about these types of dilemmas and challenges and how do we engage rightly what is uh, the right way to engage the wrong way to engage do you guys see any type of kind of exposure here that really affords us i think the opportunity to grow and and see man we've got a weakness here we we need to start doing some of these exercises uh, to strengthen the yeah. core so to speak does that resonate Absolutely, it's 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 been a a, a painful um, experience to watch this election season go on, but but it's also been encouraging in precisely the way you just articulated in that that it, it affords us the opportunity to step back uh, to to take accounts and yeah. to, to to make some important and necessary changes. Having grown up in an evangelical household, I was even homeschooled. I think that gives me some extra credit. No uh, doubt. We used to listen to <laughs> we used to listen to to Rush Limbaugh in the in the in the minivan uh, when we would drive to town because we were rural, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And so, I, you know, I, I feel like I've I've been in the sort of uh, religious right sphere for all of my life, and. I had been taught, I thought, that there are certain principles that define this approach, that, that this, this, this movement. And now we're, I've witnessed um, many on the religious right completely betray all these things that I felt like they were instilling in me for, for decades. And, and what's been exposed is that there's a kind of pragmatism, a kind of gross pragmatism at the root of things. And part of it has to do with the desire for power. Part of it has to do with just they've uh, grown so close to the GOP that they can't imagine not supporting the GOP president. And, and there are other, but there are other, uh, other issues. But I, I think what's key is that this election is exposing some problems that, that have been there for a long time. And if you were watching carefully, you could have seen, I didn't see it coming, so I don't want to make it sound like I did, but, but, but it, you could have seen it coming. Uh, this tendency to, exp- to uh, entertain conspiracy theories, a tendency to sensationalize and demonize the opponents, um, a, a tendency to, to cast everything in, in uh, all or nothing terms, um, a, a willingness to fudge the truth about America's founding and, mm. and historical facts in order to promote an agenda. All these sorts of things absolutely laid the groundwork for what, what Trump is doing. And uh, so we need to, to take a step back and consider what it is that we're doing when we engage in politics, we participate in politics, 
but also what the roles of principals are and uh, how they need to guide our voting and our supporting and, um, and a willingness to be self-critical, I think, is essential um, as well. So is this where yeah. you guys see public faith fitting into this conversation? Like how'd that come about? And then I, I think just to be real simple, what do you mean when you're talking about public faith? Well, what we wanted to look at was, is there a way to give uh, Orthodox faithful Christians who um, feel this, um, this responsibility to engage in politics a, a vehicle uh, through which they could do so um, that, uh, that represented, uh, you know, a fully orbed faith as, as, as best as we could, as we could set out. I, I think one thing that's been really helpful about public faith is, like, we don't propose um, that, that uh, we're the Christian way or that sort of uh, anyone that doesn't uh, agree with um, what we're doing or want to talk the way that we talk is sort of uh, a Christian and we're sort of the ideal. Yeah. No, uh, the only thing we put ourselves out as is there's a, there's a group of folks that um, uh, hold to the Orthodox faith that represent uh, a Christian voice um, that, that's, uh, that's going to be in conversation um, uh, with, with others and with our, with our broader politics. Yeah, and that, that's, that's key, because I think, um, going back to the previous question about what this election has exposed, I, I think it's exposed a tremendous need for institutions. Um, some of the institutions evangelicals do have uh, have not shown the kind of leadership that we needed at a time like this, the leadership that could have come out and said, uh, these candidates are just not acceptable. Uh, Donald Trump does not, he's not trustworthy, we can't expect him uh, to, 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 to protect life, and uh, we need to do something else. And I don't know what that something else is, maybe they could have said, but we need to do something else. That leadership was not there, and now a lot of that has gone to full-fledged uh, support and, uh, you know, uh, uh, of Trump. And, and in addition, not only the leadership, but the kind of teaching and cultivating of, of Christian political ethics that could have prevented something like this from happening and can work toward the common good in the future. It's just, it's just not there. And when I say that, I don't mean that nobody's doing it, which is, I think, part of Michael's point. Founding public faith is not a statement that no one else is doing politics and Christianity right. That's absolutely not. What it means is that we need lots of institutions, institutions with slightly different focuses, um, slightly different audiences, but who are working in concert to, to, for, for the common good. Um, and so we just want to be one of those voices working with many other people, uh, many other groups that are doing this work. Uh, I think that's so essential right now. So as, as we think about the role of politics and, and, and the way forward, obviously things are changing. They seem to be changing at some level at a pretty rapid pace. And you guys have, have entered into this conversation publicly through public faith, and you've got a vision statement. You've got some things for people to consider in all of this. And Michael, you wrote an article in Christianity Today talking about the role of politics and how politics for Christians shouldn't be something that they simply give up on. And so what I want to do now is just kind of Talk about some of the different ways that Christians should consider engaging culture. So, uh, Michael, I thought you did a good job 
talking about the 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 adage or the idiom of of uh, culture is upstream from politics, meaning that really what's happening first is the culture's changing and politics are responding to that culture. But I think you made a good argument in saying that that both of these things are working in tandem and culture is changing politics and politics is codifying culture. And so there's there's kind of a symbiotic relationship between these two, which is why then you made the argument Christians should engage in both. And so I'd, I'd love for you guys to to explore that a little bit more uh, here on on the show. Talk about that. What what does it look like as a way forward? So paint a picture, if you could, for a Christian, what it looks like uh, to engage politically. Yeah, well, you know, it, it's... Um, I made that argument because um, I think in the wake of some of the political failures that Alan um, was discussing earlier there there has been this sort of um, this sort of easy way out of uh, folks saying like look we, we tried the politics thing it didn't really work out by which they mean you know quote unquote we didn't win um, and so like it, it must be like a cultural thing like it, it couldn't possibly be either A, that, that we didn't go about it in the right way, or B, uh, maybe our political engagement shouldn't have as an end goal uh, victory. Like, like maybe our political engagement can be successful even if we, quote-unquote, lose the political battle but remain faithful. Um, and so I, I, I've been really convicted over the last several years, especially as I've been like talking to uh, Christian college students, and I, I just love talking to to to, to uh, uh, Christians at that stage of their life. And uh, th- there is this sense that because the uh, because our neighbors are asking questions that we as Christians haven't really had to answer before, um, that the game is sort of over. Um, and, and my argument to, to them and to, to, to all of us would be that it's actually at the very moment when uh, these questions are being asked um, that it is incumbent on us to um, enter the public square with joyful confidence in our answers. In other words, um, it, it, was, it was easy to sort of stand on a soapbox and, and sort of uh, uh, talk about, uh, you know, our Judeo-Christian nation and all of this political rhetoric, when everyone agreed with it, <laughs> when, it was, yeah. when it was a political axiom. Um, now is the time when, um, when these questions are really live, and I think it's a, it's a very exciting time for Christians to engage. That, that's going to look differently for different people. I, I, I'm not one who uh, thinks that we all have a uh, calling to quit our jobs and you know go up to the state capitol and and bug you know bug elected officials every day, but but we all do have a a civic calling by nature of uh, the place where we live, which is a representative democracy, um, to seek the welfare and the peace of the of the city in which we planted. And so you know to to to, to listeners, the question is like, what does that mean for you? What do you care care about? Are you an adoptive parent? If so, um, then you're going to want to be attentive to and active in political decisions that affect 
the ability for uh, uh, for for you to um, for you to adopt so policies like the adoption tax credit. Uh, right now, there's a very live debate around post adoption services, and is our nation doing enough um, to come support uh, families who have adopted after they've adopted? Um, because we know that, especially when we're talking about special needs adoptions or foster care adoption, um, uh, the support that they need, not, again, not just leading up to the adoption, but after. And so you could just go down the law, line of um, the interests that people have, the experiences that people have. Um, and like we would in any other area of life, uh, we want to use the experiences that God has given us and the wisdom of his word um, to apply to the situation that lies lies ahead of us. Okay, I'd, I'd love to talk about this. I've read, I don't know if you've read it yet, but uh, J.D. Nance's book, Hillbilly Elegy. Um, yeah. and, and one of the things he, he talked about that really, it, it kind of landed on me and reshaped some ways that, that I personally think was he talked about um, their, the idea of a, a federal savior coming in and fixing everything is, is kind of a, I don't think he used these words, but a pipe dream. But that the way you yeah. kind of move the dial, it, it, you put your thumb on the scale, it, is really via local engagement and 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 you know school boards and local government. And are we putting too much emphasis on the presidential election at the expense of? And, and you're you're alluding to it in, in your last answer. I just want to press it because it, when people turn this off, I think the thing I'd love for them to take away from them is involvement in their local area around their passions. And so um, can you talk, are, are we putting too much emphasis on this presidential election, maybe to the neglect of things like local local school boards or local government involvement? I don't know that, that I want to say we're putting too much. I'll say this. You're putting too much emphasis upon it if this is the only time you care about politics. Okay. Right. right? Um, so I think people should be alarmed and they should be concerned and they should be speaking out, especially Christians, about this election because um, there are many things at stake, including our witness to the world, because the world is watching who we're supporting and why we're supporting them and, uh, and what that person does. And that is going to have an effect on our ability to speak prophetically into a world that is lost and needs Jesus. Um, if if we have if we do not have the kind of if we do not display the kind of moral integrity um, that Christ calls us to, it's going to be difficult for us to swoop in afterwards and say, "Here's why you need to you know commit your life to Jesus and turn from these sorts of sins." Right. So I mean, I think just speaking spiritually, there's a, a very real world practical implication for what we do. So I don't want to say don't be concerned about presidential politics. But if that's the only time you care about politics, if you don't know your congressman's name, if you don't care about local elections, um, if you aren't concerned about local political issues and bond issues and things, um, then then you need to do a little bit of reprioritizing. And, and that doesn't mean that you need to become obsessed with politics either. You have, uh, you know, to, to love your neighbor includes being a responsible citizen but it also includes knowing who your neighbors are and knowing what their needs are and loving them practically. Um, so uh, um, I, I, I don't want to dismiss, I don't want us to shrug it off 
because this election could have a lot of implications in, in, in court cases and also in the identity of our nation. What does it mean to be an American? Uh, so much of the, of the president has to do with how we perceive ourselves. And right. I, I think that can have some implications that could be alarming. Um, so you should yeah. care, but you also need to care about other things. Yeah. Well, let me say this to you guys. One, just thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for public faith and just giving Christians and, and even those who are non-Christians an opportunity to to peer into some of the thinking and some of the writing that you guys are contributing and, and offering to us And that. So one, we want to affirm you in that and thank you in that. And then just even in this conversation, giving us things to think about, to chew on, whether it's local government involvement or pursuing our passions through some means of, of political opportunity – uh, I think I think that's a good challenge that most Christians probably aren't thinking about that. They care deeply about adoption, Michael, as you use that particular uh, example, but we're not pursuing that all the way through this particular avenue. And so it's a good word. It's a good challenge. You guys are doing a good work. We just want to affirm you. Thank you, and thank you for being on Culture Matters. No doubt. Really appreciate that. Thanks. We're going to move into our slow take section now with Kyle Worley, Mike Johnny, David Rourke. Talk about a, a new film that's recently come out called The Birth of a Nation, written, directed, and starred um, by uh, Nate Parker. And so uh, the movie, which you brothers have seen, I have not seen. Uh, I seem to play this role uh, on this show as the one who has not seen some of the things that we're discussing. But you guys have seen this movie. I know the movie comes with a little bit of controversy or maybe maybe more than just a little bit of controversy. I think it comes with a lot of controversy. Um, and some of that controversy, which we're probably not going to go into uh, in great detail on the show, but uh, it's there and it's present. Um, and I think people should be aware of it. Um, it it's, a, it's a whole different slow take to talk about that. So, um, Let's talk about the movie. What, what, what do y'all think? Give me, give me some insights, uh, David. Do you have anything that you want to correct me on? No, in terms, in terms of the the caveat, I, I would just say, yeah, there, there's a lot we could talk about yeah. there, and it's a heavy thing. But for the sake of this conversation, we just want to think about this film, talk about this film, and, and, and there may be points in which that comes up. But I don't want that to dominate the conversation. Fair enough. But let me ask you this: Do you think viewers of the film should be aware of the controversy? before seeing the film. Let me ask that. Yeah, I, I do. I think that a little bit of research and looking into Nate Parker's past and some of the allegations um, about him would be worthwhile. And then I think it, I would just leave it up to the individual believer um, to make the decision on whether or not, based on those f- facts and lack of facts, really, whether or not, according to their own conscience, they want to go see the movie. That's that's what I would say there. That's good. And and I'll say this. I did that, and, and I'm not seeing the movie in light of that. I read a post by Alyssa Wilkinson, who she's been on the show before, um, and she's super bright and has really great insights. I read her post on this particular film and thought, you know what? Uh, I'll, I'll glean something from you guys in this conversation, uh, but I'll probably bow out of seeing it. But, but you guys saw it, and so... Let's talk about personal perspectives. Mike, what do you got? What do you take away from this? Yeah, it's a unique movie to see. I remember being a kid and hearing the story of Nat Turner 
Um, but it was just kind of a quick blurb in history and it wasn't necessarily a person. And seeing the movie really humanized him and also kind of just humanized the weightiness and the atrocity of slavery. Yeah. Um, even the way it was shot and the, the faces of people. And I think the other part of it being an African American man being in ministry and then thinking that Nat Turner was a minister of the gospel and how he used his voice, uh, both for good and for ill in, in that season. Uh, just even making me feel the weight of how should I use my voice and what's the role of the church when it comes to talking about systemic injustice. So what's the film about? So it, Nate Parker is the, is the director, writer, actor, but it's about Nat Turner. And so uh, for those who are ignorant to history, uh, maybe to no fault of their own, um, but what, what, what is this? Who's Nat Turner? What did he do? What happened? Um, talk to us. Yeah, I would say in short, Nat Turner was a slave, um, grew up, raised on a plantation, and it's really about his journey of, well, I think he's he's always seeing the injustice of it. Um, there comes a moment in which, um, as a preacher, he's being asked to um, start travel around, travel to travel around to other slaves and other plantations, and preach these passages out of the Bible um, that, in some ways, would um, have the appearance of promoting slavery and would encourage slaves to submit and um, not really cause problems for for their owners. And so as he's doing that, um, I think something along with other things going on in his heart and mind, um, he's eventually led to start a rebellion, a revolution, um, to try a revolt would probably be the best way to say it um, with the slaves um, leading that and um, really rebelling against the slave owners and, and, and f- I guess fighting for justice would be the the simplest way to say it. Yeah. Um, and when you think about the way that the story is told, um, one, one of the things that we talked about, so Mike and David and I, we saw it together and we, we spent some time right after the film uh, just talking and uh, hanging out and just trying to debrief the movie. But you think about Mike mentioned this. Um, the way that the film is shot, there's a real almost focus and a concentration throughout the film on the faces of anguished individuals, um, these slaves. And uh, it was really – it was a very hard movie for me to watch. Um, the movie is violent because slavery was a violent enterprise uh, and uh, Nat Turner's revolt was an expression of that violence. The film um, does kind of raise some questions about whether it was a moral good Right, whether Turner's slave revolt was a was a good thing, um, but at the most basic level, I think one of the ways that the story is told that really um, I would say provoked my imagination was the the the. Uh, concentration of the shooting of the film on the faces of these people. It really did not allow you to look away. Uh, I, so much so that as I talked about with Mike and David after the movie, I told Mike, I just said, it's very hard for me to look at you. Um, after seeing that movie, it was very difficult for me. Just I felt a sense of um, just real shame over this part of our nation's past. And I didn't really know what to do with it, but I, I was disrupted in my spirit, sad. Um, about it. I don't know if you guys have anything to add on, on that, but yeah, I think uh, on a different side of the spectrum, just trying to wrestle what's good, right anger about our history and what is um, just a place of understanding. Um, we have seen some progress and thanking the Lord for that progress, but then also realizing this really happened to real people and, and feeling the weight of that. Like it can't be just me going to see Star Wars and not thinking about it again, right. but it is a part of who we are collectively yeah. as, as Americans. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that 
there are a lot of questions, you know, I don't know that even before the movie, I'd realized after that, I I don't know that I had as fully formed of an ethic for sort of justice and vengeance and and the fine line that can sometimes be there. Um, But if nothing else, I think, especially for the white person who um, is in many ways, um, removed from slavery now, but there's a historical connection to that. Um, I would say that it creates a, and it should create an empathy. And so I think about movies like 12 years a slave as well. And I think that there's such important movies because they develop an empathy. You, when you see something visually, it changes the way you think about it. It forces you to come to terms with it in a way that you maybe haven't in the past. And I just don't think that you can do that enough for, for, for as a white person to, to think about that enough and to realize the hurt that's there. And, and in many ways, just understanding um, our brothers and sisters who who that is wrapped up in their heritage, who that is wrapped up in their ethnicity. Um, it allows us to, to see that, to understand that in a way that I, I just don't think we would if we, if we didn't see these sorts of things. Let me talk just, just about that because I, I think you guys are bringing up a really important point, which is the humanization uh, of people yeah. and how people throughout history have dehumanized people. And when confronted with the humanity of another – uh, they're, they're often change has resulted in that. So you think about it like this: when the when the Allied troops showed up and saw oh, yeah. uh, the Nazi war camps, when they saw it, when they smelled it, when they when they witnessed it, the atrocity of it brought about change. Right? It, it brought about um, significant change, and then the healing coming from that means that we continue to look at it yeah. uh, and and. And remember, not in a way that we're always being heaped with shame and guilt, but in a way that knowing this is in us as a people, uh, it, lest we forget, we can go down this road. And I think about the civil rights movement and when we saw what Bull Connor did in Alabama, when you saw the water hoses, when you saw the dogs unleashed on boys and girls, men and women, it changed the course of the dialogue in the nation when when we saw the sonograms right that's right and you realize my word we're talking about this is a this is life this is a baby and so there's something i, I think what you guys are talking about about seeing that's really important and is a good challenge for me as one who has not seen it uh, i think about 12 years a slave i didn't see it i read the book um, so i missed out on kind of the vivid imagery of it even though i felt the weight of it through the through the words through the literature and so I do just want to highlight the importance of of seeing and and the impact that that has on us as a people. And you can look back over history and see how the visualization of atrocity has brought about change. Um, and so let's let's talk about our own cultural moment, even right now that we find ourselves in. And um, you don't have to scroll down too far on the headlines to find um, pretty consistently that we're in a we're in an era. We're in a time, some have, have called this a cultural moment, um, around race that's both heartbreaking and hopeful. Um, so it's, it's bringing about conversation. There are protests that are forcing uh, people to interact. Some, some interactions are good. Some are not good. Does this movie contribute to that at, at any level? Is it, um, does it help move the conversation forward um, or is it just totally unrelated? Yeah, I think that was one of the conversations we had during the debrief of is this 
a historical depiction of what was happening or is it through Nate Parker's lenses, him making a commentary on the current cultural moment? So even when you see some of the oppressors, um, there are particular characters that in our culture today um, would would match some of where we would say injustice lies. And so was he commenting on what was true then and it's just continued into our present or is he using those particular characters as an opportunity to, to express a frustration with our current cultural climate? And so whether that's the slave owner whether that was the bounty hunters, all of those type characters built that. Mike, when we were talking after the movie, you you had an interesting angle about fathers and sort of passing on the torch of the way that um, black men and women deal with these sorts of things and what their response is and how you see generation after generation of kind of different responses. And you see Nat Turner's response based on what happened with his father and then you see this soldier at the end of the movie who has a different response than even Nat Turner he's he's joined joined the the civil war um talk about that because I thought that that was a very interesting angle that you had thought up yeah there was a unique moment early in the movie when Turner is a little boy and his dad tries to steal food for the family um, get, gets caught by the sheriff he sees that his dad's going to get abused like he, he understands what's going to happen in that moment and it seems like the compliance that he lives with from then on out is an attempt to not end up where his dad did running for his life being a fugitive against the law um, and, but he ultimately ends up in the same place and then there's a younger boy in the movie that was supposed to be part of the revolt and he ran off and then he sees the execution of Nat Turner and then he ends up being part of the Civil War Army uh, fighting for freedom for African-Americans, fighting against the, the the removal of the South. And in seeing that happen, it was kind of this generational example that was being followed to the positive, not to the negative. And so it was just an interesting commentary that he made. I don't know that that character of that little boy was a real person in that story, but he kind of this thread of seeing people fight for justice would inspire you to fight for justice was just a unique picture in the African-American community because we've dealt with a lot of fatherlessness. Yeah, I think one of the things that's interesting about this is I've talked with other people that have seen it has been um, a real concern that the film uh, is violent for our cultural moment. That it's a, it's a, it is a violent film depicting both the violence of slavery and the violence of Nat Turner's revolt towards slave owners. And I, I, I sympathize with that concern a little bit just given how polarized and how kind of, uh, I guess, uh, simmering the conversation mm-hmm. seems to be right now. Um, at the same time, it is interesting because the film uh, shares a lot of symmetry with uh, the, the film Braveheart, which is also a violent film depicting a violent revolt. And and yet many of us are very comfortable with the story of William Wallace and Braveheart, even though it is a story of unjust oppression that leads to violent revolt. And we find ourselves at the end both highly sympathetic to Wallace and kind of championing him as somebody who stood athwart. And yet the movie is pretty much the same story, yeah. but in the context of Nat Turner's slavery. So I think it's interesting of does this – does maybe the film's violence bother us because of our cultural moment or because we don't think that Nat Turner's revolt was justified or that it was justified in a different way uh, than something we would say like – uh, Jewish organizations that partnered together to fight against Nazi Germany or Scottish clans that united together to fight against an unjust oppression. Yeah, and some people have accused Parker of um, – there's a particular moment and I think for the sake of this conversation, it's just a spoiler and it has to, to be said. But you know, his wife is um, – she's raped and um, a lot of people have interpreted 
this movie as um, that being sort of the catalyst for Turner's revolt. But I feel like in watching the movie, and I'm interested to see what you guys think, but I think that Parker actually made a distinction that his revolt wasn't out of vengeance or to avenge what happened to his wife because there's a moment when his wife is laying in the bed and he's ready to go murder the guys who did this to her. And she quotes scripture to him, basically tells him that God's going to handle this. You know, God will take care of this justice um, and that he doesn't need to kind of take it on himself. And so I saw that actually as a distinction that Parker was making that, no, he's not doing this because of that particular situation, but it it sort of has a bigger, larger um, aspect to it in terms of, you know, justice for, for a people versus seeking vengeance for his own personal situation. Did you, did you guys think he made that distinction or do you think he's using that scene as a catalyst for, I, I'm curious. Yeah, I think he made that distinction um, because even the kind of the real catalyzing moment of him feeling suffering was him baptizing somebody they said he shouldn't baptize. Right. So it actually had less to do even with any personal thing with him and more he was standing up for somebody else that he felt was being disregarded and marginalized. Then he ends up being put in the stocks and abused all that night and coming out of that, that's when he really becomes a little bit more radicalized and starts the revolution. Uh, and so I, I think that's probably the bigger moment than just the, the abuse of his wife. So I don't think it was personal at all. Well, given the controversy surrounding the film, given the fact that the film is violent both ways, both in the depicting the oppression and the horror of slavery and then depicting the reality of Nat Turner's slave revolt and the the killings that ensued because of that, like how should Christians see and interact with the movie? Like should – like what would you say if somebody's saying, hey, I'm, I'm really thinking I may want to go see this film. What would be some things that you would just exhort them to, some lenses you'd want to put on them or even some maybe additional caveats that you'd want to give before somebody went and saw the movie? Yeah, like me. Talk to me. Should I see it? Should I not see it? Um, I'd love, I'd love your thoughts on that. Well, I think I would, I'd hold to the caveat about Nate Parker as a director and thinking that's super important because the allegations against him are super weighty and important. But as a movie alone, I I think that I would mostly encourage Christians to go see it. I, I think that the narrative of a specifically of, Turner as a Christ figure, which is on full display at the end of the movie, is just super important. It's uh, cathartic, it's exciting, and I think it's deserved. I think that you think about all the different movies that have been created over history where white men have been able to play that figure and be a Christ figure in a movie. It just seems so significant that this is a movie that puts a black man in that situation and allows him to do that. And, and I think that it's justified. I, personally, I really do. And I think that, you know, if you're bothered by, by violence and I think that there are personal, you know, connections to violence that would keep people from wanting to see these sorts of things and would be really hard for them and would, you know, um, you know, make them think about things they don't want to think about that are very personal to them. I I think that, yeah, I wouldn't see the movie, but overall I think it's just, it's, it's not a perfect movie. I I should say that too. This is his directorial debut as as a movie. Technically in terms of craft, it's not perfectly done. It has a lot of flaws. I think that it's uneven in its tone and transitions and things like that, but there's so much wrapped into this story and 
and how significant it is to our current times. And I would just, again, go back to empathy. I think the empathy that it, it forces you to feel when you see these images and think about these people. And there aren't a lot of opportunities to, to watch things and see things um, in popular culture that do that. So I, I think it's worthwhile um, for that reason. Yeah, I would agree. I don't know that I would say somebody has to see it or doesn't have to see it. But what I would say is the story is too important to not know the story. That's good. And so if there is another way to interact with the story, reading, understanding, seeing it as humans as, as, as opposed to just a historical blurb, I think that's important. And then I think as believers, uh, the scriptures would call us to abhor what's evil and hold up fast to what's good. So I think there's a sense in which we can see what the evil of injustice, the evil of systemic uh, oppression of people and understanding that and learning to hate that um, and then also fighting for what's good and seeing what, how can we fight for that same good in our day. So I think it's an important cultural uh, commentary about sin can cause this. How does the believer respond to the midst of it? That's good. Well, I appreciate you guys. Thanks for uh, adding and aiding the conversation and, and giving us a lot to think about, myself included. And, and, and the, the piece about seeing people as people, uh, that's, that's kind of my key takeaway here is, is there's something about humanizing people um, that is vitally important because people are made in the image of God. And to lose that is to, to lose everything. And so thank you guys for the conversation uh, and, and the discussion here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yep. If there's anything you heard us talk about on the show today that you'd like to know more about, you can find those details on our website at thevillagechurch.net. Just look at the episode descriptions on our podcast page. On our next episode, we're going to be talking with Trillia Newbell about race, interracial marriage, and the hope of the gospel. If you have questions, let us know on social media using the hashtag AskTBC. We'll see you next time. God bless.